You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in today's lecture, we're going to begin our study on Isaiah chapter 25. Now, in this chapter, the focal point that we're going to focus upon is verse 8, in which we learn, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And so this is the passage that we want to zero in on as we have the fulfillment of all these promises in the coming one, the one who is the seed of the woman, the one who is God and man, the one who is life himself, who will swallow up death forever. So that we see this as pointing towards the Christ, the one who came to restore fallen creation. Now, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and get started. Now, when commenting on this chapter, Eusebius of Caesarea notes that after the previous chapter in which Isaiah finished the prophecy about the universal judgment, now the people of God, the hearer, is to contemplate on the kingdom of Christ. And so remember back in Isaiah chapter 24, it said, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Now remember, this is how chapter 24 ended on that note. And if you recall in our last lecture, when we were discussing this, how it is made manifest and apparent in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation chapter 4, in which the Christ in his kingdom, he reigns on the throne as he is the ascended Lord. Remember in Revelation chapter 4? Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now remember, both John and Isaiah are describing to us what they see. They are revealing to us the revelation. They are speaking of the future as if it were the present. Now, Martin Luther, the blessed reformer, when he starts to comment on Isaiah chapter 25, he notes that this chapter belongs again to the preceding chapter because it foretells the devastation of Judea so that it begins with Isaiah rejoicing in the hardening of the Jews, so that the godly may rejoice over the destruction of the ungodly. Remember, as we talked before, this distinction between this earthly Jerusalem that refuses to listen to the word of God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, on the other hand, that rejoices in hearing the word of God. Now let's go ahead and begin at verse 1. Isaiah writes, O Yahweh, 
You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Now, when Luther's writing about this and he comments the wonderful things that uh, God has done, in particular, Luther notes the sending out of the apostles, that they are sent out to the ends of the earth to release the captives from the dominion of darkness from the devil, that no longer will the devil be able to deceive the nations, that this is a wonderful thing, that God has come to free us. You see, Yahweh, our God, has done these wonderful things. These are plans formed of old. These are all about the promise of the seed to the woman in the garden. That this is the ancient promise, the ancient plan that was formed of old. Of course, Cyril of Alexandria says this is none other than the mystery of the incarnation. That God delivered to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 25 that the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is the king of glory, the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the sheep from the goats, as a shepherd does. But for the sheep who listen to his voice, they are to inherit the kingdom that's prepared from the foundation of the world. And again, back in Genesis chapter 3, God gives this promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God speaks to the serpent that this end will come. This is a plan that was formed from the beginning, that the devil will be defeated. It's promised. His promise is passed down from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And so we see this like in Genesis chapter 17, where God declares, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Or again in Genesis 22. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have heard my voice. And so this promise is formed of old from the foundations of the world, that there will be a restoration of humanity. When the Son of Man comes, the true Son of Man, who is in the image and likeness of God, without sin, but perfect. He is righteousness, and he will overcome wickedness. He is life, and he will overcome death. And he is light, and he will overcome darkness. The darkness that has been spread throughout the earth ever since the fall into sin. But so these plans of God have been formed of old, these wonderful things that he put into motion at the very beginning. And so John will tell us in Revelation chapter 13 that the lamb was slain 
from the foundation of the world. And St. Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 1 that he chose us in him, that is the Lamb, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, St. Peter tells us in chapter 1 of his first letter, regarding the mystery of the incarnation, he writes, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Ever since the days of Adam, the people of God who have this promise have been longing to see the Savior, to see the salvation of the world revealed in the person of Emmanuel. Now Isaiah goes on in verse 2, writing, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. I remember as we were talking in chapters 21 and 22 and 23 about these earthly cities that are in opposition to the city of God, namely Babylon, earthly Jerusalem, entire. So he removes the cities of the ungodly, the fortified cities, the hostile powers. He compares them to towers and walls and strong people, but yet he will make them a heap. For these cities are no match. They try to prevent and put an end to the city of God, but they will not succeed. Because his plan, his purpose, is from of old. The wicked and hostile powers attack. They're in league with the devil and the dominion of darkness. These are cities that are built by men. But we know, unless Yahweh builds, the builders build in vain. So this will be destruction upon any of these earthly cities. Namely, here, the city of earthly Jerusalem will be destroyed. It will be overthrown by the Babylonians, and then it will be overthrown by the Romans once for all. Now remember back in Isaiah chapter 1, when the prophet came with these very harsh words, and he said, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So that's verses 7 and 8 back in chapter 1. You see, there's this contrast between, again, earthly Jerusalem built by men, and the new Jerusalem built by God. So that you'll see later on in Isaiah 44, speaking in comfort to the remnant, your Redeemer, who alone stretched out the heavens, 
who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. And so this is the faithful city. And so this is what Isaiah talked about in chapter 1, verse 26. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. See, earthly Jerusalem in opposition to God is called the besieged city, the destroyed city. But new Jerusalem is the faithful city, the strong city, and the holy city. You'll see this later on in chapter 26, where it's called the strong city. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And later on in Isaiah 52, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So back to Isaiah 25, verse 3, where the prophet continues this imagery of cities. He says, Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. And so in this, we have the conversion of the Gentiles. These cities, this enlightening of people in darkness, salvation to the world, and Emmanuel being brought in so that these earthly cities will be overtaken and the citizens will be brought into new Jerusalem, into a new citizenship with God. And so Isaiah continues in verse 4, writing, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless like a storm against a wall. Now again, notice he's using the same imagery. He's comparing with towers and walls and strong people, a stronghold to the poor. The only reason that New Jerusalem can be the faithful city is because Christ is in her midst. The only way she can be a strong city is because Emmanuel dwells with her. The only reason she can be a holy city is because the Holy One of Israel is with her and for her, making her holy and strong and faithful. For Christ is a stronghold to the poor, the afflicted, like in Isaiah 11. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the spirit of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Back to Isaiah 25 at verse 5. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. 
So the song of the ruthless is put down. See, the Lord will subdue the noise of the foreigners and all of their earthly kingdoms. He will confound and he will bring relief. For the song of the ruthless will no longer be heard. There will be the ruin of the ungodly. And so all of this imagery of these cities and these competing cities, these earthly cities, and then the heavenly city of God. And then you move into this language of mountains. Now remember, Isaiah will use the imagery of mountains to talk about kingdoms. And sometimes by synecdoche, a mountain is a leader of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom. But these mountains rise up. Remember in Isaiah chapter 2, the mountain of God will rise up higher than all the other mountains. So in verse 6, Isaiah goes on and says, on this mountain. So we're talking about the kingdom of God, the city of God. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And so this is Mount Zion. This is the church, this is the people of God, the kingdom of God, God reigning on earth. And so remember back in chapter 24 of Isaiah, you had that same imagery, that Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. The glory, of course, is Christ, the Son of God, the Kavod Yahweh. And so Mount Zion, New Jerusalem, this mountain, it is where God will dwell in the midst of his people, bringing an end to the oppression of the devil. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 11, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And again, so we have this understanding of this Mount Zion, this holy mountain, this new Jerusalem will extend to the ends of the earth. You will have the conversion of the Gentiles, that Yahweh will be made known to those who did not know him. And of course, in chapter 2 of Isaiah, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. So again, you have this imagery of the kingdom of God, the mountain of God, which will be the highest of all the mountains. And the nations, the Gentiles, will be converted and flow in and be part of it. So in Isaiah 25, verse 6, he says that, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Again, this is the conversion of the Gentiles calling through faith into this kingdom of God, being brought out of the dominion of the devil and reigning with Christ in the kingdom of light. And so look at the language he uses as food language, feast language. Now remember, of course, back in the Garden of Eden, it was the devil who overcame the man and the woman with food. But God will provide food, a 
feast, a feast of celebration and rejoicing in the victory that God brings. And so we look at this feast that God gives. A feast, of course, is how you are sustained in your life physically, and of course, how you are sustained in your life spiritually. So you always have this movement of the physical to the spiritual. That God gives the manna, the bread from heaven, which sustains the body. But this points, of course, to Christ, who is the true bread from heaven, which sustains the soul. And of course, you can never disconnect the body from the soul. So when Christ comes to restore the soul, he comes to restore the body in the resurrection. Now compare this back to Isaiah chapter 5, in contrast with the feast there. Back in Isaiah 5, they have a lyre and a harp. Now remember, whenever we have a, a contrast between we or they or God and them, take note. Here it's they have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast. But they do not regard the deeds of Yahweh or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. So again, notice this contrast. It's they, it's the leaders of Jerusalem who have led the people astray. The people are starving from the word of God. They are not being fed the word of God. So that you have a famine of the word. And God says, of course, back in chapter 5, remember, he will cause the clouds not to rain. That no longer will you have this life-sustaining word of God. That there would be a famine of the word. When the leaders don't want to teach God's word and the people follow after it, the people get exactly what they want, which is food that does not sustain body or soul in God's sight. But the contrast here is there is going to be a different feast, not their kind of feast, their feast with this artificial food, but instead a feast on the abundance of the gospel. And so this is the feast that God talks about. He says that it's a feast he will prepare for. And when we talk about the mystery of the incarnation and this restoration of all of the corrupted human nature throughout the world and Christ coming in the flesh and Christ giving up his life for the life of the world, that he's, his body is the sacrifice and his blood is shed, we can't help but make the connection with the feast that we have in the Lord's Supper, that Christ gives to us his very body, which restores our body. Christ gives to us his very blood, which sanctifies us and removes our sin. So that in the eating and participating of the Lord's Supper, communing with Christ, we partake in a feast in God's kingdom, in this city that he comes to bring at Mount Zion. Now, Isaiah continues to, to use this language and this imagery, if you will, that this imagery of eating, the imagery of feasting, that remember, again, that this is how the devil tempted and he succeeded in breaking Adam and Eve with food. It's Christ who comes to restore us, and he gives us food. 
he gives us his supper. But Isaiah will continue to use his language of eating in the next verse when he says, and he will swallow up. And so this whole language of eating and partaking and and putting in your mouth and swallowing, that Christ will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And then again in verse 8, he continues with this same eating imagery. He will swallow up death forever. This is what Christ comes to do, to swallow up death, to swallow up this veil that covers all of fallen humanity. And so notice how this whole play on this imagery, that the devil overcame Adam and Eve with eating and swallowing the forbidden fruit. And that even throughout scripture, you'll have the imagery that death, that Sheol, that the grave swallows up the sinner, the wicked that a person is swallowed up into death and taken away. And so this same imagery is being used here, that Christ comes to swallow up the veil and to swallow up death forever. He is going to remove it. Now going back to verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain. Now again, We want to emphasize that this mountain is Mount Zion, as we learn in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, that this is the holy city in which the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, gives to us that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So it's on this mountain, it's in this city, the holy city of God, that these things will be accomplished. So going back to verse 7, that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Now again, notice this this Hebrew repetition to bring clarity. We have a covering that is cast over all peoples. And then it comes back around and says, the veil that is spread over all nations. I mean, you can't get any clearer than this, that we're talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. This is all peoples. This is all nations. Now, regarding the covering and the veil, we look to the New Testament uh, into the second letter to the baptized in Corinth. In chapter 3, Paul will talk about this veil that's over the heart of the unbelievers. Paul writes in verse 14, and he's talking about the unbelieving earthly Jerusalem. He says, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
And so Christ comes to remove the covering and veil that was over the nations, the people who were not God's people, those who were in darkness. But the people of God who have the word refused to walk in the light, but instead wanted to be in the darkness of the Gentiles. But yet we have this promise in Isaiah that Christ will come to remove the darkness that the Gentiles walk in. And so you have this whole contrast here between the people of God who should be walking in the light and the people who are not God's people who are no longer walking in the dark. And so Isaiah, remember also in chapter 2, was telling Jerusalem, the people of God, saying, walk in the light, O Jacob. But that veil can only be removed by Christ, either the covering that's over the Gentiles who don't have the word, or even the Jews who do have the word, but refuse to listen. Paul teaches us that only through Christ is it taken away, because he will swallow up on this mountain the covering and the veil. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.